When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bolin. That is our super producer, Noel, which I guess makes this another episode of Car Stuff. That's uh, that's what it is. Oh, I'm so glad we're in the right place. Scott, um, this is something that I came to you with because I think there's an amazing story in here. I think you're absolutely right. And again, it's one of those things that I can't believe we've gone years without really focusing on this company. Yes. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you the history of the Honda Motor Company. Maybe it's because we were scared of it. Maybe it's just a little bit. It's intimidating. It's a lot to, it's a lot to look at. It is. It's intimidating because, uh, you know, there's, there's a a rich history here. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. You know, when we talk about the founders of companies, we always get kind of wrapped up into these, uh, these extra little sidebar stories. And because the the people that, that develop automobiles, the people that develop automobile companies, um, are, are, Typically, they're fascinating people, Ben. They've got so much going on in their life, as you would expect. I mean, it's not just like, you know, they get up and decide to do it one day. This is a a lifelong passion with them. And such is the case with the founder of Honda. Yes. Our story today begins with a fellow named Sochiro Honda, uh, born in 1906. Yeah, 1906. So that goes back pretty far, but the company itself doesn't go back that far. Now, Honda Honda Motor Company uh, goes back to 1948, mm-hmm. and of course, it's still around, so it's a company that, that exists today. Everybody knows that. I'm, I'm positive of that. Um, but the, the way that we got from 1906 to 1948, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And, uh, and I think that's what our primary focus is going to be on today. I mean, I know mm-hmm. that everybody probably wants to hear about, you know, the, the certain makes and models of cars that, you know, have done really well for Honda. And we'll touch and, on that. And some of the innovations along the way that have, you know, made, made you know, the, the company, the brand really, really great, actually, because they, they're a manufacturer of engines, and they do that very, very well, mm-hmm. as we'll find out. Mm-hmm. Motorcycles, automobiles, power equipment, they make Even all kinds of stuff. solar power they equipment. Make, they make just about anything and everything, really, that uh, you can imagine. It's it's a uh, it's a huge, huge company, but it has a relatively humble beginning. 
Yes, it has a beginning. Um, well, okay. The the ideal is to me here uh, wants us to go to the beginning in terms of uh, the first time Sachiro Honda decided that he wanted to be involved with cars. We can do that. Is you that want, okay? Yeah, let's do that. All so right. How far back does that go? Oh, man. Literally, it goes back to grade school. Yes, yeah, second grade. He saw his first automobile uh, when he was in second grade. And now this is in a little town. Um, it's called Hamamatsu. I think I got that right, right? Yeah, good job. Hamamatsu in Japan. And uh, he was at uh, elementary school. And this, uh, I think this was the first automobile to uh, to really... You know, enter his his village's city. Um, cars were extremely rare at the time. We've talked about that in the past. That you know, this is the era when you know they just weren't around. They just weren't uh, prolific. They weren't being built in such numbers that they were everywhere. Right. And uh, so they were very rare. Uh, but the first one that came to his town, I mean, he he was in, in, uh, intensely interested in this thing. Um, you know, as a as a young kid. Just fascinated with it, everything about it. They said, and I read somewhere or heard somewhere on some video clip. I've watched so much and, and listened so much recently. I, I forget where this comes from. They said that, you know, it, where it parked, it had left a little pool of oil on the mm-hmm. ground. And they said that he was so fascinated with it, he went over to the, the little puddle of oil in the sand or whatever and scooped it up with his hands and brought it up to his face and kind of inhaled the oil and just was smelling like, what what's this thing leaving behind? You know, what is this? What's this all about? And he was just yeah. that intensely fascinated with it. Like everything and anything about the automobile, he wanted to know about from that point forward. And he stayed with this um I guess fixation is a fair word. We should know, uh, as a kid, he was helping his father with a bicycle repair business. Yeah. Yeah, so he had a fascination with things that were mechanical, right? I mm. mean, was his, his dad was a blacksmith, I think. Yes. Also, and his mother was a weaver, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was like a, you know, would weave silks and things like that. Um, but he was a blacksmith, so he had a mechanical knowledge as well. And I guess this kind of, uh, this kind of, you know, drifted down to, to him. You know, he had interest in the same type of thing, bicycles, of course. Mm-hmm. Loved to ride his own bicycle all around. That was a, that was a uh, common sight, I guess, was to see him on his bike. Um, but he knew, he also knew once he saw that car, that this was the thing that was going to lead, you know, the, the world really into the the next era. It was going to be, you know, the, the industrial revolution. That this was this was it. I mean, this is going to bring people together. It's going to allow people to move out into you know greater reaches in, of the country. Um, it was going to allow to travel. It was going to allow all kinds of different things. You know, transport of goods. Um, he just knew that this was this was the uh, the invention that was going to do it. And he didn't wait long to start chasing this. When he was only fifteen years old, he um, left. His left his town, left mm-hmm. his hometown, and went straight to Tokyo uh, to start working in a garage. Yep, capital city. He went to uh, <laughs> the capital city of Tokyo, and uh, he worked at this uh, this company. It was called Art and Company. Um, after graduation, now it's a mechanic shop, and you can imagine, uh, I, I can imagine they weren't terribly busy, or maybe they were really busy. I don't know how to I don't know how to gauge this, Ben, because here's a uh, an auto shop. In, uh, well, let's see, what year would that be? In 15 20s, years later, yeah. early 1920s. I don't know how busy it would be, but Tokyo's a busy city, so, you know, there might have been a lot of cars around there. He stuck around at, at this art and company for about six years, kind of learned his trade because, you know, this is where he's really getting hands on with cars for the first time. Um, and then he moves back to his own hometown of Hamamatsu and he opens up his own, um, Art and Company branch, I guess, the Hamamatsu branch of Art and Company. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's got a big deal. I mean, to open up his own company at such a young age. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was only 21 at the time, right? Right. Uh, he was 21, 22-ish. Okay. He's on the cusp. All right. And so uh, 
he continues working for this, but of course, although history would have us put some rose-tinted glasses on there, he didn't have the easiest time. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, things weren't going so well for him at the shop there. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know if it was just a, a lack of business or what was going on there, but, um, you know, after after a while, he had acquired all these automotive skills, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to start up my own company again. I'm going to start up uh, something called the Tokai Seiki Company. Um, and that's in 1937. So, you know, this is still, he's given it a pretty good go with his own, uh, his own automobile company, or his own, um, rather mechanics company, I guess the art and company thing. Yeah. And, uh, he decided that this, this Tokei Seiki company, uh, was gonna produce piston rings. That was what he was gonna build. Right. Piston rings for Toyota. And this is where we see, uh, a little bit of an uphill journey for him because originally these piston rings were rejected. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you why, Ben, because he's not a precision engineer. He, he didn't have the, uh, he didn't have the education to, to do this the proper way. And he, I'm sure he thought he could, you know, with all this mechanical skill that he had. And he did, he was quite skilled at it, apparently. Um, but he didn't have the proper machining skills, you know, the precision engineering edge that was necessary in order to make it in this company. So, cause, I mean, piston rings are, are, that's a, a vital internal component that, you know, if they're, they're wrong, well, of course they were rejected. If they're, if they're wrong, they're just not going to, it's not going to operate the proper way. They have to be right. exactly right. So he entered the uh, Hamamatsu Professional School of Technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, that's where he kind of mastered the basics, uh, worked as, a, I guess he worked as an auditor while he was doing that. So he had another job on the side. Yep. Uh, but he, he finally um, was able to produce these piston rings of a much higher quality once he finished this education. Right. And when we say, notice we say finish, not graduate, because mm-hmm. he didn't actually graduate. He just learned enough to figure out what he needed to improve, which I think, um, if you look back and any stories of great inventors, that's kind of a typical thing. Now, that's pretty smart. See, he went in saying, I just need to know how to make piston rings better. And then he, he focused on what to do, what to do there. And then he got out. Yeah. And, and- and- Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I think that's, I think it's smart. And by 1941, uh, he was mass producing these rings and he was employing people who were unskilled, which yeah. is a huge thing. And during World War II, of course, you know, we've, we've talked about this so many times, but you know, the, uh, all the production shifts over to the military angle, the military, uh, um, aspect of this whole thing. And he started producing, uh, piston rings for the military machines of the day. You know, whatever Japan's needs were at the time. And so he, his company started working day and night producing piston rings. Um, and it was, it was, you know, of course, a, a huge success for him. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a contract that lasted a long, long time. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't last all that long because, uh, the, uh, the, Tokai Seiki plant uh, was actually destroyed by bombing in 1944. Yeah, and uh, after that, the plant in Itawa collapsed in an earthquake in 1945. Uh, one point I do want to make about the wartime. Yeah, he you can't get a break. Can I tell you, I mean, when I read that, I was like, what is going on here? He gets it's bombed, and then an earthquake hits and kind of finishes the job. Yeah, and before that, if we can just go back a little bit, there's something that happens um, in the early 40s which is just terrible uh, for uh, Honda here. Uh, Tokai Seiki is under the control of the Japanese government at this time, the wartime Japanese government. Um, and they were in peace. They were known as the Ministry of Commerce, but they became the Ministry of Munitions. Oh, boy. Because that's the effect that a mm-hmm. war has. Sure. Um, so, so Chiro Honda was demoted 
in his own company from president to senior managing director. Oh, my gosh. Because Toyota had a 40% stake in it for a while. Wow. So that, Wait, wait, wait. Toyota had a 40% stake in what would have been, well... Tokai Seiki. Okay, yeah. That's not really the Honda Motor Company. So that, I, That's I, not the Honda Motor I, Company. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, as as they were working toward these wartime efforts, they were doing so under heavy direction by, you know, one of the largest companies in Japan at the time and the Japanese government. So already when the earthquake and um, when the bombing strike, he's had a, a rough couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that would uh, that would slump anybody's shoulders, I guess. I mean, that's pretty humbling to uh, have somebody walk in and take over your company, really, Ooh, and tell yeah. you how to run things. That's got to be something that's uh, that's tough. But he perseveres, right? Yeah, that's right. And, but, you know, after World War II, uh, really, he was, wasn't producing rings anymore, obviously, because, you know, his company was factories gone, and, uh, you know, the, the contracts had dried up. And, of course, you know, after World War II, um, there wasn't as much work as there was before, and there's a the, the company's or the company the uh, the the country is is just war ravaged. I mean, yeah, the economy's uh, in shambles. Exactly, um, it's a, it's kind of a burnt out shell of a of a country at that point in okay. most places, um, anywhere that had been hit. And so you know he thinks, well, what what can I do to uh, to uh, kind of follow up on my success of the uh, of the piston ring company yeah and, what can i do to not give up yeah and he still had you know he still had some collateral left from you know some money left over from from the company and you know, what was he going to do with the, the remnants of the company the machining or whatever and uh, he decided that he was going to start kind of playing around with um with engines mm-hmm. yeah this is uh this is true because he started um playing around with engines specifically he had about 500 two-stroke uh, 50cc uh, things called Tohatsu radio generator engines. Okay, and those are like military surplus engines, right? Right. Yeah, those are those are spoils of war. Yeah, they were they were from uh, what would they be from like scooters and things like that? I would guess. Yeah, and he founds the uh, Honda Technical Research Institute. In mm-hmm. 1946. Yeah, that? 1946. So we're edging up on the date when Honda Motor Company is is mm-hmm. first introduced to the to the world, really. Yeah. Um. So so 1946. Uh. He's he's built this thing, and it's a it's called the Honda Technical Research Institute, and it's uh I think it's about 165 square meters of uh, floor space in this, and it's big, um, like a factory type situation, yeah. I guess. You yeah. know, where it's a it's a research and development area, really. Yeah. Let's just say that the name is kind of highfalutin for the physical. Location. Yeah, yeah, and he's got twelve employees. So mm-hmm. he starts out this uh, this Honda Research Institute with uh, with twelve employees, and what they're doing is their their focus is on internal combustion engines, motorcycles in particular, because mm-hmm. you know they're they're attaching these little engines to at the time they're attaching them to bike frames, right? Which is not uncommon at the time. A lot of people were doing that. It's a way to mobilize the country, really. Yeah. So here's how that would work. You are customer, you know, Jane Doe or John Doe, and you have your conventional bicycle, uh, you could buy an engine from someone like Honda Technical, and they would give you instructions to attach this engine to your chain on your bicycle, mm-hmm. or 
to attach, um, or they would attach it for you for, you know, a nominal fee. Sure, yeah, but it was a way to get everybody on the move again because, you know, like we said, it was a, uh, it was a bad time in Japan. I mean, there were just other transportation was in complete chaos at the time. Sure. Uh, so it just, it, this was a way for people to, to regain some mobility. And, um, you know, they, they used these leftover engines from the war effort mm-hmm. in order to, uh, to kind of do that. And, and there was a huge demand for them, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. And they also had to save, this is a very important point. It's going to come up later. They also had to save some of these engines for themselves to reverse engineer. Understood, yeah, because uh, we said that they were tearing down and and trying to determine how to make them more efficient. Uh, they, had, they had focused, you know, all these 12 employees had focused on how to make them how to make them better. It's like taking a good idea and making it better. And so they, they had this, uh, they created this chimney engine design initially. Um, and then they created what they called the A-type engine, which was a two-cycle half-horsepower engine that uh, was really kind of the, the first thing. And they, it was nicknamed uh, Bata Bata, I yeah. think is what they called Bata, it, for, Bata, Bata, for, the, uh, for the sound that it makes when, uh, they, when they run it. It reminds me of the, uh, the Harley Potato Potato. Yeah, thing, yeah. It? <laughs> it, only makes, it, it only makes sense if you... Um, if you're willing to embarrass yourself from listening to us on the air, uh, just try try the noise. Just say it softly, kind of like a bata 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 bata. Yep, over and over again. You have to do it, and otherwise, and then you'll kind of understand exactly how this sounds. Now they were extremely popular; these A-type engines. Yes, and uh, and it was man. I think it was all the way until um, 1948 they were building these things, right? Right, and then they get to uh they get to the point where they say hey you know what instead of just making engines for people to put on their own bicycles what if we make the frame as well mm-hmm. and that's what happens in uh, in late 1948 and that's the founding this is the start of the Honda Motor Company and they formed again Honda Motor Company Limited uh when they employed about 20 people initially mm-hmm. so it was a, a company that started with just 20 individuals and uh again it was uh you know because of the success of this A type engine that they had and uh there were about man i think there were something like you know, based on the success that Honda Motor Company had with with this engine in 1948, or up to 1948, it kind of spawned this uh, this whole uh, influx of motorcycle manufacturers into just into that one city, into Hamamatsu City. Um, there were something like 40 other motorcycle manufacturers that were in that city alone. So the competition was incredibly fierce from day one. Really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, they were developing new and better engines all the time. Of course, Hondas seems to be on top of the things. You know, they're they're developing even better and even more efficient engines than everybody else, and and that's what uh, proved to be you know the, the best for them is that you know they went on to develop new products as well because they they moved on to the B type in 1948, mm-hmm. the C type in 1949, which is uh, uh, let's see. It's almost twice as powerful as the A-type engine was originally. So, you know, in just three years, they've doubled the uh, doubled the power in the thing. Um, you know, of course, it was a half horsepower to begin with, so they jumped up to one horsepower uh, by the time they got to the, the C-type. Um, and then they went on to uh, create the D-type, I think, um, in uh, in 1949, so you know they're they're moving on, they're they're progressing, and you know these are all still two cycle engines. Around I think the D type even we're, we're we're all the way up to like the three horsepower, you know, 98 cc. So these are tiny engines, but yeah. um, they called this one they called the D type engine the dream, the Honda dream. Yeah, the dream, and that's a that's a uh, moniker that kind of hung on for a long time for several of the Honda engines mm-hmm. um, because. Um, well, he, he uh, Sochiro named it that because he felt his dreams had come true with this thing. Because you know, this is uh, this is making him wildly successful. Yeah, and what's interesting also about the name is uh, a little sidebar here about uh, Sochiro Honda. Uh, he was 
apparently kind of a guy with a, his head in the clouds for a little while. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, especially, you know, that happens a lot with inventors or anybody who's kind of a visionary. Um, I just enjoyed that his his wife's quotation. Uh, she said that he was a wizard at hardly working. <laughs> a wizard at hardly working? Oh, is that a backhanded compliment or she, what? She must have been angry about that. Yeah, I guess that so. Day. That's what. But beforehand, he had bounced from different jobs, working as a mechanic, <laughs> uh, a race car driver, even a distiller. Um, now, this was all before he took over that old factory in 46. And, um, so this is before he's focused. Yeah, before he and really the whole time he's pursuing this dream. So, of course, he's going to name the Model D. So before he really focused on what he was doing, before he really kind of buttoned down and said, I'm going to go this direction, she said he's a wizard at hardly working. I think, I, you know, you got to be really careful if you ever comment on somebody's family life. It's just a quotation. But I, I like to think that the entire time he still kind of had that smell of oil in his head and... I mean, if we're going to be a little bit sappy about it, in his heart. <laughs> but so, yeah, but agreed, so, agreed. Uh, I'm just saying, though, people may have discounted him this moment, um, just to underline how big the production of the Honda Dream is, the Model D, is the moment where, as you said, his dreams come true, and that's not just fluff. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and this is kind of, uh, you know, this is years into it. So, you know, he said, you know, I've actually I've realized my dreams at this point. And, it's, and this is in 1949. So, you know, and this guy, he lived a long, long time. So, you know, he, he saw this company grow exponentially over the years. I mean, in every year, really, from, from all the way from the beginning, from 1948 all the way through, you know, today, really. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he didn't see it through today. We'll talk about that later. But anyways, we, we mentioned that they were the first motorcycle manufacturer to build the engine and the frame, too. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something unique, and I, I hadn't really thought about that prior to this point, but a lot of companies were receiving engines from other manufacturers and putting them on their own frame, or they were, you know, vice versa. And no one is really building the whole thing from start to finish in their own factory under their own roof. And and Honda was really the first one to do that. And that made them extremely efficient and successful, you know, because it was uh, it cut down on a lot of uh, the transportation costs, you know, shipping 100 engines a day to, uh, you know, X factory over there and sure. having them put them on their frame and then assemble a bike and sell it. Uh, so it was, a, it was a big time money saver. Um, it just made complete sense to do it that way. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. 
Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So we're in 1949, and another guy joins the uh, joins the company, and he's actually credited with founding the company, which I find kind of strange, but he steps mm-hmm. in early, early in the company. His name is Takeo Fujisawa, mm-hmm. and uh, in October of 1949, he, he leaves a lumber company or a lumber industry that he was running, uh, so he had a you know, great big executive position. I don't know what, what role he played in the lumber company, but um, he left this to become a managing director at Honda, and uh, you know... I guess the goal, I guess the goal that, you know, uh, Sochiro and, and Takeo talked about was that they wanted to, uh, Honda to become a worldwide company. Right. And uh, Takeo Fujisawa is often acknowledged as the sales strategist of Honda. Um, one of the things that he said, which is some advice I've heard before in an unrelated situation, he said the company's policy should be to face the toughest challenges first, mm-hmm. which is... Great advice to give, horrible advice to hear, and which usually defines it as great advice. Yeah, it is good advice, probably. Yeah, yeah. So, and things move quickly. I mean, from this point. So Ooh. we're talking like he arrives in October '49. By March of 1950, uh, so just a few months later, they open up a Tokyo office. So again, that's the capital city. They're in Tokyo, um, and by March of uh, 1951, uh, the Tokyo factory started production. So they're building. Engines and motorcycles and, you know, again, they're just building motorcycles at this point and engines. They're not building cars at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, they started with something like 300 motorcycles per month. And two years later, Ben, and by like 1953, I think, they were building 1,000 motorcycles per month at the, at the Tokyo factory. And selling them like hotcakes. Yeah, yeah. They were, every one of them was sold. It was, uh, it was definitely a popular item. And, and this is during the time when, uh, you know, like the Korean War is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a, there's, a lot that's that's happening at this time. Oh yeah, you know what? We need to say this. Production had switched over to four-cycle engines in the early 1950s uh, because customers thought that you know the two-cycle engines were a little too loud, a little too smoky. Sure. Um, they they feared that they would seize up a lot of times because you know you don't get the proper mix in there, and they mm. do seize up. You know anybody that owns a you know a chainsaw or something like mm. that knows that they uh, were a little too bata bata, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. So you know by the early 1950s they had moved on from two-cycle engine to four-cycle engines, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and early. I'd say early 1950s, like uh, 1951, they produced another one of their dream engines, which is called the E-Type, mm-hmm. and that was already up to 5, 5.5 horsepower, a four-cycle overhead valve, 146cc engine. Um, just uh, it was, I don't know, it was kind of a a, a, a big step for them, big move. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, well accelerated well. I mean, it had this yeah. real high status along, you know, among people in the motorcycle market. Um, it was just a high performance engine. I know 5.5 horsepower doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time, that's considered like a high performance engine. It was it's efficient and it was reliable. Yes, and if we're okay, stop me if I'm going forward too fast. I want to get to the late 50s. Sure. Okay, the Honda Super Cub motorbike debuts. Okay, let's talk about it. Uh, first, it's awesome. 
And that's uh, that's the main thing I want to say. Second, uh, it took sixth place in its class at the Isle of Man TT in 1959. No kidding. Uh-huh. And that's the same year that uh, Fujisawa uh, gets his wish and uh, taken again his own advice to say tackle the toughest challenge first. Uh-huh. 1959 is the year that Honda attempts to penetrate the U.S. market. All right. So they're, uh, they decided that, you know, it's time to, uh, time to move on, time to go overseas, I guess, right? And yeah. they, uh, and they developed their first U.S. dealership, uh, mm-hmm. in 1959. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're still not making cars, Ben. They're just making engines. Just motorcycles. Engines and, and motorcycles. And I know a lot of people find that hard to believe, but, um, I've, I've always thought of this. I've always thought that Honda is, as a, uh, as an engine factory or an engine builder that mm-hmm. happens to make automobiles. And yeah. uh, and I guess it's not that far off now that I think about it because, you know, I'd always seen Honda engines on other power equipment, you know, on, right. on leaf blowers. And sure, on, uh, small lawnmowers. Yeah, and lawnmowers and water pumps and Ooh. all kinds of things. It was everywhere. And, of course, you know, four-wheelers and other other things like that and outboard motors or whatever. Um, but I always thought of them as a, uh, as a as a as an engine company that happens to build cars, and it's not too far off, really. Yeah, and here's the thing that happens when they're in the United States. Um, all is not well or peachy keen in the very beginning. Uh, they're trying to save money. They send just a small group of people uh, to the um, to the west coast of the United States with their planning division chief, uh, Kihachiro Kawashima. And uh, these guys need to save money, Scott. So they share a one-bedroom apartment. They're stacking their motorcycle crates by hand in the warehouse and the problem is that the Honda Dream motorcycles just seem a bit too fragile for the um, the sustained high speed and long distance that Americans want. Ah, so it's a different type of riding here in the United States. Different type. I got it. So they had to adapt, right? So they uh, they started building all kinds of different motorcycles. They mm-hmm. said, well, in order to fit that market, we're going to have to figure out how to change our product, our current product. And that's what they do. And they build so many different types of motorcycles. Ben, I can't even begin to read the list of motorcycles that they have. I, I tried to print it out. It was several pages long. Yeah. I mean, literally hundreds of different types of motorcycles that you know have gone in and out of production through the years, throughout the, the many, many years, decades, I guess. Sure. And, uh, and they finally figured out... Out that you know in in Europe we're going to have to come up with this type of, of mm-hmm, motorcycle because people in Europe want this type of drive exactly and and the same thing for the United States and the same thing for Japan they already had the Japan angle figured out um, you know and here's what we're going to do when we go to India you know it's just going to be it's going to be completely different for every country every continent that we approach yes and I want to tell a little bit of a an addendum here to the story on the West Coast okay so their Honda Dream motorcycles this is how they figured out that. Um, you might not be able to make one bike for the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Honda Dream's not doing as well as they thought it would, and they ha- they were lucky enough to, to have borrowed a million dollars from the Japanese uh, Ministry of Finance, right? Mm-hmm. And they thought, oh, we're going to burn through it with nothing to show the shame and embarrassment. But it turns out what people were more interested in in the States were the little 50cc Honda Super Cub cycles that the team was doing was using to run errands, you know, to like pick up sandwiches and stuff. Yeah. Now these are the ones that they, are these the F type engines that you're, you're talking about the little uh, the ones that said white tank red engine that was yeah. the, uh, the, yep. the tagline I guess in these. Uh-huh. Now in just a few months 
they sold 25,000 of these things. So, uh, some of these were sold overseas, but a lot of them were sold in Japan. But this Cub F-Type engine was apparently wildly successful. I mean, again, 25,000 sold mm-hmm. in just a few months. That's amazing. So th- this company's running on, you know, on, well, whatever's popular at the time, but they're able to adapt to it almost immediately. They're saying, like, you know, or they're creating this, really. They're yeah. saying, here's our next new product, and that becomes what's popular. Yeah, and uh, they had other taglines like the Thrifty Nifty Honda 50, um, which a lot of people in our audience will probably remember. Uh, the Honda 50 is often called the two-wheeled Model T. Hmm, interesting. I can see why. So, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I think getting I, derailed. No, that's all right. I think we, so we've talked about that they're, they're here in the United States at mm-hmm. this point. They're, they're wildly successful. Uh, motorcycle manufacturers, engine manufacturers, of course. You know, they. In fact, I want to say that just so I get this out there, because I yeah. know I'll forget it if I don't. I'm, I'm looking at the note right now. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport, and I'm Kibi Rappaport, and together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Up until, uh, well, actually since 1959, a Honda's been, been the world's largest manufacturer of motorcycles since 1959. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a record that they still hold. They're also the world's largest manufacturer of internal combustion engines by volume. They produce today, Ben, they produce 14 million engines each year. It's crazy. Fourteen talk. million engines. So, so going from you know these tiny little factories that we talked about in uh, Hamamatsu, yeah, all the way up to you know worldwide production, which uh, and I've got a list of facilities here in front of me too, um, and I can quickly run through them. But there's uh-huh. there's several of these of these places that are building these things. Again, fourteen million engines a year. Uh, they're building them in Japan, India, United States, Canada, Mexico, United Kingdom. Belgium, Argentina, Brazil, China, Colombia, Thailand, Turkey, Malaysia, Philippines, Pakistan, Vietnam, France, Italy, and I think there's even more than that. Wow! So you know they're they're definitely a worldwide company, which is what they wanted in '49 when they brought in uh, Fujisawa. Mm-hmm. Remember that was the goal. Yeah, they achieved that uh, in spades. Made mm-hmm. that uh, made that goal a reality. They've become. Um, well, they've become a big seller, but not the best sellers. I was looking up bestseller numbers for U.S. and Japan. Yeah. And uh, I've got numbers here from, I think it's up to 2013, 2012 in some cases. But um, in Japan, the best-selling car right now is a, is a Toyota Corolla. And I don't think that they've ever been, Honda's ever been a bestseller in, uh, in, in Japan, Japan or in the United States. I don't believe that has ever come up. I've tried to look in the records. I couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the Corolla sold something like 40 million cars worldwide since, uh, since its production, um, all the way through, uh, July of 2013. And, uh, the Honda Civic and Accord, we'd be remiss if we didn't say this, are, so very ubiquitous in U.S. culture. Yeah, yeah, they're huge. Now, I I do want to say that the best-selling vehicle in the United States is still, and I think a lot of people already know this, but it's the Ford F-Series truck from right. something like 1948 until now. And uh, that's when they've been, no, that's when they've been building it. Well, that's when they've been building it. They For 28 consecutive years, however, it's been the number one selling vehicle in the mm-hmm. United States. It's tough to unseat that one. That's a that's a difficult one to, uh, to, to beat. Uh, but you mentioned the Civic and the Accord, right? Yes. Um, yeah. The Civic is a, it's, it's obviously a brand bestseller mm-hmm. uh, for Honda. They do do well with that. Um, they've sold <laughs> something like, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go <laughs> they on. They do very well with that one. How about that? Yeah. Um, they've sold over 16 and a half million of those things up until, my numbers only go to 2006, so there's another seven years of production on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been around since 1972. Oh, another, uh, this is a bit more of a dubious record for, uh, for a while there. Uh, I think it was the Honda, it was either the Civic or the Accord was one of the most uh, stolen cars in the United States. Which goes with the, the big numbers, right? Right. You build a lot of them, a lot of them are going to be stole, stolen, I guess. So uh, you know, that, that makes sense. Spoiler alert for our Grand Theft Auto episode. Yeah, yeah. these stolen cars uh, you, number usually matches the, uh, the, the highest production mm-hmm. number. So that's, that's the way that works. Now, the Honda Civic is approaching... 42 years of production at this point. Wow. It's been around since 1972. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's it surpassed the Model T in production years because mm-hmm. uh, that was 1908 to 27. That was 19 years of production. And the Volkswagen Beetle is still on top of that with um, with 65 years of production between 1938 and 2003, the original Beetle. So wildly successful brands. Now, that came from one car. And I, I do think that we need to mention the first car that uh, that they brought over here to the United States. I think that's uh, that's important to mention because they didn't start building cars until 1963. 
Right, and that's when they released the S500 in Japan. Exactly, and that's the first production car from Honda. It was a two-door Roadster, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, it was really kind of a neat-looking car. It looked like um, it, it really is something that you wouldn't guess came from Honda. I mean, looking at what Honda produces today, yeah. I guess. Uh, you know, in in a way, I guess I could see it from the uh, the S2000 model. I guess similar to that, you know, two-door Roadster. Mm-hmm. However, um, this S500, which is part of that line, it does follow that line. Oddly enough, uh, two-door Roadster kind of looks a lot like the MG Midget did during the during that day. It's a good point. Yeah, um, developed in the uh, I, I guess kind of via their their motorcycle expertise, right? So mm-hmm. it had this 531 cc dual overhead cam, inline four engine, 44 horsepower, which is not fantastic, but again, about the right size for a small Roadster like that. Yeah, 1500 pounds. Top speed was 80 miles per hour, and the price tag been. Twelve hundred and seventy-five dollars in nineteen sixty-three, and I did the conversion. Oh, okay, lay it on me. All right, twelve hundred and seventy-five dollars in nineteen sixty-three is equal to nine thousand six hundred and twenty-nine dollars and sixty-five cents in twenty thirteen. That's a bargain. That is a bargain. So this was a this is one of those cars that came on the market, and everybody's like, "Wow, a car for twelve hundred bucks! I can afford that." And you know, just the same way if if a car were to come on the market now and be under ten thousand dollars, yeah, it's the exact same thing to say, "Yeah, that's I'll take that." And uh, let us not forget that the very next year, in 64, Honda enters Formula One. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So here's a car company that's, and of course they're building engines, right? Right. They just started building cars in 1963, and I'm, gl- I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, they've got this long list of, of car models that they make now and racing cars and concept mm-hmm. cars and everything. But for a car company to start in 63 and in 1964 start racing in Formula One, that's unheard of. Yeah, if you're not uh, Sachiro Honda. Yeah, I guess. Now they're providing they're providing engines, of course, for companies. You know, like I say, they put it on a Brabham chassis, yeah. so they may put it on a, a different chassis, and they're producing the the Formula One engine. They're also producing Formula Two engines at the time, and that was wildly successful. I don't I don't think the Formula One cars were as successful as the Formula Two cars. There were mm. some beautiful Formula One cars, no right. doubt. Yeah, uh, they win their first. F1 victory in 1965 in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And in 1966, in Formula 2, they had a successful year. They had 11 wins for a, for a Honda engine. They, they had a 1,000cc engine that they were producing for Formula 2. And uh, that was even more successful than Formula 1. But the Formula 1 cars get all the uh, all the press and all the excitement. Sure, yeah. And they were beautiful designs. If you've never seen the, the Honda Formula 1 cars, well, you know what? Check out our blog because there's a blog post there, and that happens to be one of my favorite F1 cars from a post that I'd written, I don't know, a month ago at this point. Yeah, and you can check that out on our brand new website. We're like, I feel like uh, we're those kids who finally grew up enough to have our own room in the house. <laughs> that's right. Our website is carstuffshow.com, and that's just one of the awesome blogs on there. Yeah, and you know what? That's uh, that they'll give you an idea of what some of these um, you know, Honda entries into Formula 1 and Formula 2 look like. Uh but the Formula 1 cars were were Honda cars as well. Um man, they've got just so many different concept vehicles. I know we're we're kind of running long on this one, so maybe we don't need to go into all this, but um Man, they've got just a huge long list of, of current vehicles that they produce. I mean, think about like cars like the Prelude that are that are gone now. You know, yeah, that uh, that car that was always fascinated me. Um, there were some cars with four you know four wheel steering. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of advancements, and and you know what they they kind of took some of those advancements into a different direction with the uh, the Acura brand. 
Ah, yes, yes. My favorite uh, being the Acura NSX from 1990. Definitely my favorite as well. Now, some people might not know this, but the Acura brand has only been around since 1986. Um, And it was really kind of a a move that no one really expected because they were the first – Japanese automobile manufacturer to release a dedicated luxury brand, which Mm -hmm. nobody really thought that Honda would ever have a luxury brand. Right, especially if you keep in mind that they were selling, um, ever since the days when they were just attaching engines to bikes, their their method was uh, to have a consistent and consistently affordable uh, thing, not not a high-dollar fancy for lack of a yeah, better word, not something vehicle. that's going to be competing with uh, with Lincoln and uh, sure. and, and Cadillac mm-hmm. and you know those makes and, and things like that. But this is what that's what Honda is doing with with the Acura brand. So you know I understand what they were doing that they were they had to shift direction and they, and it ended up being successful for them. Obviously the Acura brand is still around, still doing very well. Yeah. And uh, and I agree with you that NSX is maybe one of my favorites. And you know there have been a lot of concept cars that have come from Honda that then turn out to be Acura branded vehicles when they arrive. On the, uh, on the showroom on floor. On the shores, yeah. yeah. The, you know what's weird, Scott, what we might have to do? We might have to part two this. We might have to come back just to talk about the models and the racing. And yeah. I, You know, I, I, I didn't really think about that when I started this. Now, I know we had so much about the uh, about the founder and, and all that. We didn't really get into the current models or any of that stuff or yeah. any of the advancements or anything. But the, the story, the history behind where this company came from is so fascinating to me that, you know, it... it it derives itself from these tiny little two-stroke engines that were attached to bicycles, and now we're talking about you know a major powerhouse in the world, uh, in the automotive world, mm-hmm. and everybody knows it. It's a household name. I mean, sure, it's, it's yeah. known worldwide. Very successful brand, and it's exactly what these guys wanted. They had that vision right from the beginning in the 1940s. Well, let's call this then the Honda origin story, maybe. Yeah, and, maybe. And uh, we'll end where uh, Suchiro Honda. Ends. So, in 1989, Suchiro Honda is inducted into the U.S. Automotive Hall of Fame. Uh, at this time, he is 82 years old. Oh, prestigious award. Prestigious award. Um, the first person from any Asian country to be inducted into that Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, um, historic as well as prestigious. Um, he's also had medals created in his name, such as the Suchiro Honda Medal, Um that is given to recognize outstanding achievements or contributions to the field of personal transportation. Makes sense. He's a member of the Order of the Rising Sun. Ah, I did read about that. That's interesting. And uh, with these and many other accolades. He's a top member in that as well. He's one of the uh, one of the upper echelon members of that uh, Rising Sun Order, I believe. Yeah, uh, senior third rank. Yeah, very good. And uh, these are just a few of the awards that... He personally, uh, he personally acquired, perhaps in a later episode, we'll talk about all the awards that Honda's been racking up. Sure. Um, and then in 1991, August 5th, uh, Suchiro Honda passes away, leaving a legacy that continues today. Yep, he was age 84. I think he died of liver failure, so it was something, uh, you know, that was, uh, I guess, beyond his, uh, his, his ability to, to prevent at that point. And, uh, man, 84 years old. Not as long as I'm sure that, you know, he would like to have lived, of course. You know, he wanted a long, long life to, to enjoy all the success because he was working right up to the very end. I think he, he actually worked until 1973 when he retired. He officially retired in 73. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he came back on as a, uh, get this, Ben, 
supreme advisor and director of the company. Supreme advisor, that's what he, uh, his title was. I mean, any job title with supreme in there is pretty cool. And he hung around until about 1983 doing that. So, you know, he was only officially, I mean, fully retired, I guess, for about eight years before he passed away. So, you know, I didn't really get a chance to uh, completely live out, you know, all the uh, things that he probably wanted to do post uh, mm-hmm. you know, employment, I guess. But I guess he was kind of wild even in that. He was uh, he was into hang gliding, ballooning, um, skiing. Yeah. He was still kind of into, like, um, oddly enough, into kind of like uh, adrenaline sports almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it kind of makes sense, I guess, with, you know, the, the beginnings of this company. You know, that he was just this dreamer guy, this uh, this guy that uh, he was a, a wizard at not working or whatever you said. What was that? Uh, <laughs> hey, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, his wife said that. <laughs> That's right. But uh, what a fascinating guy, fascinating company, and, uh, man, we are going to have to come back with part two. This has already gone too long. Yeah. Well, this is a Honda origin story, so stay tuned for part two. Before we get out of here, Scott, I've got some listener mail for you. Okay, so Will from Newcastle, Australia writes in to tell us, Hey, guys, I thought you may be interested in a few other things about road trains from an Australian native. Very interested. He said, I have never driven road trains, but I do drive trucks over the summer out west, and I have some experience with them. Uh, first, he said, now this is long, so I'm just going to hit the highlights. First, he said, as you can probably imagine, they go through a huge amount of fuel. By the time you get out into the outback where they're common, it might be a 1,000 kilometers between fuel stations, so they have enormous tanks to make up the distance. Uh, when you stop at one of the stations, you'll notice high-flow fuel bowsers. They're fuel hoses that fit onto the tanks on each side of the truck. Um, the fuel hoses are about the size of a fire hose. Wow. So it doesn't take drivers an hour to fill up. Uh, if you fill a regular 4x4 with these, it'll be full in about 10 seconds if you can get the nozzle into the tank. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, that's an amazing amount of fuel. Um, all right. So there's another one. He says, uh, drafting or overtaking. While road trains do travel very quickly, you will often want to overtake. It's a strange procedure because they're so long and you're traveling so fast, it can be almost impossible to see around them. You don't want to begin overtaking a 100-foot road train traveling 130 kilometers an hour only to find out halfway through that there's an oncoming 100-foot, 150T road train traveling toward you. Oh, my gosh. That's where you uh, quickly hit the brakes and then duck in behind it, right? Yeah, that reminds me of a, you know, a very scary game of Frogger or something. Yeah, it sounds terrifying. Yeah, uh, the one time, oh, here's one, roadkill. The one time uh, that you don't want to overtake them is around dusk or after dark. You would not believe the amount of wildlife, kangaroos, emus, goats, that will be on the road out there. I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said you may pass big groups of these animals every 10 to 50 meters. They will totally destroy your car if you hit them at any kind of speed. You'll be stuck in the desert overnight. Without a truck ahead of you, you'll be forced to travel, say, something 30 to 50 kilometers an hour to avoid having accidents. So you're better off just kind of riding in the draft after dark, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because road trains are so big with big bull bars and big lights, it's very safe to travel right behind them. They will literally plow a path for you. Sometimes the guys don't even slow down and will just continue to travel at 130 kilometers an hour. Uh, With so much weight, they have no way of stopping. Interesting story. So usually you can reach the driver over the radio and explain that you would like to follow them into the next town, and they'll slow down. Ben, this whole thing, I mean, everything about road trains is fascinating to me. I mean, even, like, the fueling thing is interesting, Mm -hmm. that, you know, they fuel with something the size of a fire hose. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it sounds like uh, almost like race car when they they fuel up your race car, how quickly that happens, right? Right, yeah. Um, the, uh, The whole thing about, you know, just 
they continue on if they hit something because they're, they're so big, so massive, it's harder to get them going again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the overtaking, that's an, that's amazing because, I mean, who who has the guts to do that, I guess, especially at night, like uh, like this listener yeah. says. Um, even during the day, that's a dangerous maneuver because, sure. you know, for fear of another one coming the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't see around it. Yeah, just the, the sheer tonnage that these things haul. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just got to be it's got to be a fascinating thing to see in action. Oh, and you'll love this email, Scott, because I'm just hitting some of the high points. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just end it here with this one part. Uh, Will says the road train drivers out west are truly professionals and will almost always help you out if need be. They're also very courteous, in my experience at least, because they realize their size. Thanks for the great podcast. It's always good to listen while I'm driving trucks 8 to 12 hours at a time through the summer or while I'm down on the tractor through the winter. That is a long drive, so 8 to 12 hours a day driving. But, uh, man, that, that's really cool. I'm glad to hear that you know the uh, the road train drivers are courteous, too, because I think that goes a long way uh, when you're driving a vehicle that mm-hmm. size. I mean, you have to be courteous to other drivers. Otherwise... Well, man, I, well, I guess you don't really have to, I suppose, if you're driving something that big, right? <laughs> right. I it's guess you choice. don't have to. It's just classic. Yeah, it's just dignified. And now, Scott, with that email, uh, maybe we shouldn't feel so bad about going long on some episodes. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, this was a pretty long one. but uh, oh, Hopefully it was interesting. Uh, yeah, I hope so. We'll, we'll come back with uh, with a part two, I guess. Kind of a follow-up. Maybe not anytime soon. We don't have any uh, any plans to do it. We didn't yeah. have plans yeah. before this. So, um, man, we'll get to it, though. Yeah, it'll be the modern Honda. In the meantime, this would be a perfect time for you guys to write to us and suggest some stuff Honda-related that you would like us to cover in more detail in an upcoming episode. Or, you know, just uh, let us know what you think of Honda. Or if you have any suggestion for an upcoming episode, you can always shoot us a Facebook message. You can drop us a tweet on Twitter. Or you can send us an email directly. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.